invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word, which comes this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Father, help us to endure and live godly lives in a world full of deception. May we be faithful in the midst of trial and persecution, knowing that if we continue in what we have learned and believed and cling to your word, we will be complete and equipped for every good work that you've prepared for us to do to the glory of your name. Use this time now to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. Fill Pastor Daniel with your spirit as he teaches us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you hear me? Awesome. That was my fault. That wasn't Aaron's fault. Aaron does a great job. <laughs> Our sound, our sound and tech people are wonderful. Can we just give them a round of applause? And though my wife isn't in here this morning, I don't mention her in the sermon, and she's very hurt. So we make sure you tell her how beautiful she looks today. You ladies, you guys stay away. She's mine. Um, my name's Daniel. I am... Uh, one of the pastors here at Christ Community Church, it's usually my privilege to get to lead the corporate singing, but today is my privilege to get to minister the word. And uh, we have come a long way together in this Roman series, and we are quickly approaching the end. For some of you, this is a blessed relief, and for some of you, this may be a disappointment, but the ground that we have covered over the last year is potentially the richest and most beautiful theologically in all of the New Testament. In our passage today, Paul starts to engage in some of his typical end of letter stuff. The way Paul ends his letters is he starts updating people on what's going on in his life and uh, what his, his coming plans are and greet this person and greet that person and he issues a couple of warnings and a final benediction. And at this point in, a, in an epistle, it's really easy to zone out. <clears throat> to dismiss these portions of Scripture as unimportant to us today. But all Scripture, as Michelle read, all Scripture is beneficial. And in this passage, Paul addresses three pertinent things about himself uh, and, uh, and all those who belong to the Lord as well by, by default. And the main thrust of this passage this morning is reaffirmation. It's reaffirmation. We aren't going to do a direct comparison, but if you go back to Romans 1, verses 1 through 15, you will see that uh, our passage today 
it, from chapter 15 is filled with reaffirmation of what Paul wrote in, in chapter 1, 1 through 15. And I want us to see this morning that Paul is issuing a reaffirmation of instruction, a reaffirmation of authority, and a reaffirmation of purpose, a reaffirmation of instruction, a reaffirmation of authority, and a reaffirmation of purpose. So diving right in, I don't have any fun story to, to hook you in with. We're just going to jump right in. Reaffirmation of instruction. My brothers and sisters, and starting in verse 14, chapter 15 of Romans, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points. Although he's never met these folks, it's clear that Paul holds them in high regard. In chapter one, he says that their faith has, has become famous throughout the known worlds. He acknowledges that they are full of the spiritual fruit of goodness and that they are also filled with all knowledge, knowledge of God, of the Christian faith, of, of, of Christian ethics, and so filled with goodness and knowledge that they are rightly able to instruct one another in these things. Yet he still has taken the time to write this behemoth of an epistle, reminding them more boldly on some points. I feel like that's kind of an understatement by Paul. <clears throat> and what are some of these points? We're going we're gonna to journey back through Romans together. Some of these points. God's wrath against unrighteousness and ungodliness is revealed in the descent of mankind into moral insanity. And the people are not innocent victims of sin, nor are they ignorant of the truth. Rather, they in fact suppress the truth in their unrighteousness that they embrace. And that they give accolades to those who do what they know is evil and lawless. Yet, even those who have religion, even those who have the law, even those who claim to love the truth can find no comfort in the law's ability to rescue them. The law only reveals that their works are a form of hypocrisy and self-righteousness that has caused God's name to be blasphemed among those who don't have the law. And what is required by the law is true circumcision, not circumcision of the, of the physical flesh that can be undertaken in religiosity or ethnocentric pride, but the circumcision of the heart that only God can do. And the nail in the coffin is driven home when humanity is revealed to be thoroughly wicked. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. Those who were made in the image of God and tasked with carrying his goodness and his beauty and his truth out throughout the, all the earth have turned into death-dealing deceivers. They're broadcasting lies about the Holy One whose image they are made in through their evil deeds and intentions. But God has not only revealed his wrath against this evil, he has revealed his righteousness in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Though none could ever hope to justify themselves, the gift of justi justification has been delivered to them by the one who is both the offended party and the judge. 
And it's a justification by faith, not self-righteous works. A justification for all people, not just the Jews, but the pagan Gentiles as well. And that justification does not only provide us a legal decree of righteousness, but it actually reconciles us to God. It ends our exile from the garden. It destroys the spiritual cancer that was passed down to us from our father Adam. And it ends the reign of sin and death and ushers in the reign of grace resulting in eternal life and reunion with God. And in that reign of grace, we are free. Free from the specter of death, certainly, but free in a real temporal sense. We are free to put off the old man and put on the new. We are free to exercise our agency to do what is pleasing to God and brings blessing. We're free from the chaos of dependence upon self and bondage to the flesh. We're free to depend upon and be led by the Spirit of God. And we are free as children to cry out, Abba, Father. And someday all creation, including ourselves, will be free from the bondage to decay. From futility, from sin, free from sin entirely. And nothing, not suffering, not demons, not persecution, not any other circumstance will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, now or in the age to come. And although there is a profound tragedy that ethnic Israel has corporately rejected this gospel, there is great joy that God and in his sovereignty has used that rejection and will use that rejection to bring into his family all of the elect people from all the nations. And because of this election and justification, we are to live lives as an offering to God, consumed by honoring God. Humble members of the body, serving one another with our spiritual gifts, bearing spiritual fruit, and abounding in mercy towards one another. And we live under the recognition of God's authority, not just in our private spiritual lives, not just in the church, but as citizens who genuinely believe that Jesus is the king of the world. We're to put him on. Represent him in the love that we show one another as a public display of his kingdom here on earth. And we now live under a new law. We live under the law of love. We live under the law of liberty, a law that frees us to bear with each other's weaknesses, to help each other along towards Christian maturity and Christian freedom. A law that puts to death our insistence on pet preferences and preserves one another in the choices that we make. We are to protect the unity of those who are within the church and we are to long for the addition of those who are without. Those who have not heard, those who remain gripped in the power of sin and death and we long for them to hear the good news of God's gracious King. And we're to give ourselves, as Pastor Ryan preached last week, we are to give ourselves to this longing so that all whom Christ has died for will be brought in to, this, to the family of God. 
These are just some of the points that Paul has affirmed in this letter, and it is beautiful and compelling and true, and some of you are bored with it. (laughs) But still, we're gonna finish strong. My question in studying this text, after Paul has presented this beautiful gospel, is that if they are so filled with goodness, knowledge, and the ability to instruct one another, why would they need this letter from Paul? In writing this letter and acknowledging their good character, Paul is practicing two things that we should take note of. First, Paul is practicing diplomacy. Paul was a smart dude, and he had motives for writing to this church. He wasn't just chit-chatting, but he was trying to accomplish something both within the congregation and for his own God-given mission. Obviously, Paul was trying to correct some of the wrong beliefs and attitudes that the Roman Christians held. Additionally, this church was strategically placed as a launching point for the farthest reaches of the empire, and Paul had his sights on taking the gospel to those far reaches. But rather than coming in hot like he did with the Corinthians, who needed a really strong hand of correction... Or rather than being demanding and insistent upon his apostolic privilege, he leans into all the things that the Roman church is healthy in. He strikes a tone of honor and encouragement and even humility in order to build relational capital and connection with this group of people. Now he's not pandering, he's not flattering, he's being courteous, And he's assuming the best of the Romans in order to accomplish a broader kingdom goal. But Paul is also, so Paul is practicing diplomacy, but Paul is also practicing discipleship. The bulk of this letter is devoted to doctrinal instruction and its behavioral consequence. Paul has given them a feast of robust theology and a bundle of directions, directives for, for regenerate believers. He doesn't shrink back from teaching, rebuking, correcting, training those who are already doing well, pushing them onwards towards completion. And why? Well, I believe it is because these Christians are in the heart of the Roman Empire. They are in the belly of the beast, and Paul knows that that empire is trying to make them true believers in Rome true believers in in Caesar. He knows that their culture is trying to disciple them, trying to catechize their children, trying to conform them to the spirit of the age, trying to make them in the image of Rome. And so he disciples them with the truth. He doesn't worry about offending their intellects or their maturity. He washes them in the truth. And Paul reveals that diplomacy and discipleship are not antithetical to one another. They are both necessary for the expansion of and the maintenance of the kingdom of God. So, after reaffirming his instruction, Paul issues a reaffirmation of authority. He issues a reaffirmation of authority Starting in verse 15 again, he says, Nevertheless, I've written to remind you more boldly on some points. Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, 
serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. And as a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem in the far east all the way to Illyricum. Illyricum was the, was the, uh, the Roman province that was right across the Adriatic Sea from Italia, where Rome was located. And Paul roots his authority to give instruction, to bind the consciences of these Christian believers. He roots it in his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles and in the demonstrable works that God has done through him. In the absence of personal relationship with them, he's providing the Romans with a resume. Here and in Romans 1, he's claiming to be both the subject matter expert and the designated formal authority to deliver this instruction. And now he boasts in what God has done in and through him and not what he has accomplished on his own volition. God called him and appointed him an apostle. And although intentionally Jewish in culture and upbringing, he, God gave him a burden for the Gentiles. His proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles has been attended by the power of God in signs and wonders, and he has faithfully obeyed God and labored across the eastern reaches of the empire, planting churches and carrying the gospel to the very doorstep of Rome. Now, Paul's claims aren't like the claims that many who call themselves apostles today make. Claims that are in, in the main, unverifiable. You see, the churches that Paul planted and the churches that those churches planted lasted a long time in those regions. The church in Smyrna existed until the Arme Armenian genocide in 1922. Rome was eventually converted to Christianity as a consequence of Paul's apostolic work. And the gospel has come to us because of his authority. And notice that yeah, we are Gentile brothers and sisters here. Paul is our apostle. He's the apostle to us. And we know the good news of Jesus Christ because of Paul's work. The gospel has come to us because of his authority, and we notice that Paul was a faithful servant of God's will. He saw his authority as a designated authority. A, sorry, a delegated authority. We note in verse 16, it is God's intention that the Gentiles be presented to him as a sanctified offering, not Paul's intention. And by what means are people sanctified? Through the very gospel that Paul is preaching, that's what he means by being a priest of the gospel. The role of the Old Testament priest was to bring the offerings of the people before the Lord and perform all the, all the ceremonies in order to, to, to offer up this sacrifice. But in the gospel, the offering is the people themselves. We present people to God as an offering. And Paul is thrilled that God works by his spirit in and through Paul to bring to glory, bring, to bring glory to Jesus 
in the salvation of the Gentiles. Paul understands that he is an ambassador. He is both a man under the authority of a sovereign ruler and a man given authority by a sovereign ruler to proclaim the authoritative message, which is Jesus is Lord. And Paul is reaffirming that authority here. But he's also providing a reaffirmation of purpose. He's providing reaffirmation of purpose. Read with me in verse 20. It says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Paul expounds on his purposes for going to Rome. In Romans 1, Paul tells the Romans that he longs to come to them so that he might have some fruitful ministry among them, that they can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. But he also says, I'm under obligation to the Greeks. I'm under obligation to you to preach the gospel. But I'm also under obligation to the barbarians. The barbarians in the western, on the far reaches of the Western Empire. So Paul is just developing their understanding of his purposes and wanting to get there. In verse 22 through 33, which we won't read, Paul explains that his goal is to set up a base of operations among them in order to be sent out to Spain. He recognizes that a good foundation has already been laid in Rome and he isn't called to build on another person's foundation but to move out into the inky darkness of the unreached lands and illuminate it with the light of Christ. He recognizes that the flag of Christ has already been hoisted in Rome and soon the king will conquer there. And so he must continue on past them. And this isn't an innovation on Paul's part. He didn't get together with his ministry team and say, hey, how can we be on the cutting edge of Christianity? What program can we, or project can we undertake in order to garner some new religious you know, market share? No, he, he calls back to the Old Testament. In verse 21, he's referencing Isaiah 52. He's referencing the suffering servant. He's referencing a story that was written hundreds of years earlier. Listen to what is said in that passage. He says, see my servant, the suffering servant, who we know to be Jesus, will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. And so he will sprinkle many nations. He will make many nations holy. And kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see that he had, for they will see what they had not been, what had not been told to them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Paul is looking back into the Old Testament and recognizing that all of the nations belong to the Messiah. All of them are his sacred and holy inheritance. All kings and nobles and peasants and paupers owe them his their owe him their allegiance, owe him their worship, and Jesus is worthy of their allegiance and worship. Worthy to receive glory and honor from every tongue and tribe and nation. And yet, there are still those who have not seen, Paul says. Have not seen the beauty of Christ in his gospel. There are still those who have not heard, have not heard of the wondrous righteousness that God has revealed in Jesus. There are still those bound in slavery to their sin, still staggering under the wrath of God that is revealed against that sin. And though his kinsmen, by blood, may have failed to be the light of God to the nations, Paul is unwilling to fail in the same way. 
He's committed to bearing the standard of Christ to unconquered territories with the good news that Christ claims all of it. The land, the air, the culture, the people, Christ lays his claim of loving lordship over all of it. And it moves something in Paul that there are people and places and nations and families that have not yet been offered up to God as, an ex- as a holy sacrifice. Paul reaffirms that his purpose is not to come and perform his apostolic rock star show in Rome, but to pierce the darkness in the hinterlands of the expanding kingdom of God. And we are to participate in this. Paul is not only our apostle, Paul is our example. Yes, Jesus is our ultimate example, but I'm not a God man. You're not a God man. He's in a, an ontological category that is, is distinct from us. <clears throat> and, but it's good and right to, to seek to emulate Christ, but Paul also tells us to emulate him as he emulates Christ. It's good to have human examples, heroes even, as long as we don't turn them into idols. And Paul's near compulsion to accomplish his God-given purposes serves as a wonderful example to us. So what does this mean for us? Besides us rejoicing that the gospel has come to the Gentiles and we are the inheritors of that, what does it mean for us? Well, to apply this sermon, to apply this odd text, we have, to, we have to derive the application from asking ourselves a few questions. First, who are you receiving instruction from? And who are you giving instruction to? It's clear. Paul thinks the Roman church is doing a pretty bang up job, yet he unashamedly instructs them in the gospel and fully expects them to be receptive to it and to instruct one another in it. Paul warns them about not being conformed to this age but, being, but be transformed by the renewing of their minds because they were in the heart of the Roman indoctrination machine. And because the world and the ruler of this world uses everything then and he uses everything now. Traditional media, social media, politics, education, advertising, music, TV, YouTube, unbelieving friends and neighbors. He uses everything to try and conform us to the way of the world. It's a nonstop barrage of godless worldview and narrative. Think about something as innocent as Peppa Pig. If you watch it for long enough, and hopefully you will notice that there is no conception of God within that show. No external transcendent reality from which meaning and morals are derived. No supernaturalism. It is subtly reinforcing a secular materialist worldview. There is no God. Morality is boiled down to whatever people think is nice. And all that exists is that which can be seen. Now, I don't have a vendetta against Peppa Pig. Right? But to my shame... In an hour-by-hour comparison, Clementine has been exposed 
My daughter, Clementine, has been exposed to more Peppa and Bluey and Disney than she's been exposed to the scriptures and the gospel. And who do you think is instructing her more effectively? The average American will spend, depending on the study, between eight and 13 hours consuming media in a day. Eight to 13 hours a day of another person's thoughts, another person's values, another person's worldview, another person's narrative, another person's experience being poured into your heart and mind. That means that during most of our waking hours, we are consuming some kind of media, music or podcasts or lectures or talk radio or TV, and all of it, all of it is promoting, it's instructing, it's attempting to conform us to something. And how much do we think that our 30 minutes of Bible study in the morning or our 15 minutes of family devotion how much do we think that is really doing to counteract that tidal wave? Now, not all media is bad. I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to classes. I love listening to my audio books, my audio Bible. I, like, but we must ask ourselves, who are we receiving instruction from? Who is our primary instructor? The world? Joe Rogan and his guest on his podcast, Tucker Carlson, whoever is left on CNN, I don't know. <laughs> Some random YouTuber? Or is it God through his word? Is it brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it faithful fathers and mothers in the faith? Christian mentors, ask yourself who? Who or what has the most time with you? And that is what is likely giving you your primary instruction. But the second part of this question is, who are you giving instruction to? Fathers, are you taking seriously the call in scripture to instruct your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Or are you expecting Sunday school to do it? Or your wife to do it? Wives, you should be doing it too, but. Older women, are you taking seriously the call in Titus 2 to instruct younger women? Older men, same question, except with younger men. Wise people, are you instructing the foolish? Strong people, are you instructing the weak? Too often I sit with men who are experiencing the pain of having failed to give godly instruction to their families in a fashion that counters the world's indoctrination, whether out of convenience, confusion, they just don't know what to teach, or cowardice. And now their wives are leaving, or their children are imploding, or an ungodly worldview is leading their entire family to destruction, Brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve failed to instruct his wife in the garden. Failed to instruct her that that snake isn't actually looking out for your best interests. And his failure to instruct was a failure to serve her. It was a failure to love her. 
failing to boldly give loving instruction to those who are, who are in your sphere of authority is usually not an act of just gentleness or deference. It's an act of betrayal. But we must always consider diplomacy in these matters as well. Sometimes a strong hand is needed and sometimes it's a winsome word. The next question we need to ask for the sake of application, whose authority are you submitting to? And what authority have you been given? What authority are you exercising? We don't have time to get into a deep discussion on spheres of authority. If you're interested, you can talk to me or you can come to the Worldview class. I love exploring this topic, but we are all under the authority of Christ. Matthew 28 makes it plain that all authority, not just heavenly authority, but earthly authority, all authority has been given to Christ, and as a result, we are to go transform the nations. We're to go conquer the world. Not in the way that the world conquers, but anyway. Now, traditionally, Reformed Christians have envisioned the absolute authority of God being delegated to humanity and grouped within three earthly spheres, the government, the church, and the family. I would make an argument that biblically there are five spheres, including the individual and the people corporately. But whether there are three or five, they are all authorities that are delegated from the ultimate authority to serve his purposes and for our good. All of them are good and have a just claim over you to some degree. Thankfully, none of them are ultimate authorities. That is reserved for Christ alone, but they are legitimate authorities within their spheres. So I used to hate formal church membership. Like, I used to buck against it at every possible opportunity. I was applying to be an intern at a church, and one of the requirements to be an intern was to be a member, and man, I just went round and round with the leadership of like, how am I not a member at this church? I serve here every Sunday. I devote my life and energy and treasure and blood and sweat and toil here. How am I not a member of this church? Well, you know, they talk about, well, it's kind of like a ring on your finger. You kind of know who's married to I'm like, how's the Holy Spirit not the ring on me that I have been joined to the church? Like, why? Just push back, push back, push back. Finally, my desire to do the internship was greater than my desire to be, you know, to, to stand my ground on this. So I became a, you know, a begrudging member. <laughs> but when I look back at young man Daniel, I realize I was happy to submit to the general concept of a church and its authority and membership within it because you can't be confronted by a general concept. I didn't want to submit to a specific church because they can confront me. They can examine my life. They can practice discipline on me for the sake of spirit, my spiritual health and well-being. They can actually exercise authority. So the question is, so whose authority are you actually submitted to? Not just mentally submitted to, but whose authority are you actually submitted to? In your heart of hearts, are you submitted to the government in your attitudes and practices? Do you drive the speed limit? Do you pay your taxes? Do you pull permits for your projects? 
We can argue the justice of those things later, but like, <laughs> I'd be happy to. But are you submitted to the government in your attitude and practices? Are you submitted to a church? It doesn't have to be this church. But are you submitted to a church who knows you, who you know, who has authority in your life? Are you submitted to your position and responsibilities within your family? Sons and daughters, are you submitted in your heart to your parents? Or do you think them foolish and repressive? Do you rebel at every opportunity you can? Are you submitted to your roles and responsibilities within your family? And are you submitted to the word of God? When the word of God confronts you, do you submit to it? A way to gauge if you are submitted is to consider how you respond to instruction. If a parent or a pastor or a government representative, a fellow believer, an employer, your spouse gives you corrective instruction, what's your instant response? Gratitude and honest consideration? In further investigation and, and introspection? Or is it revulsion and anger and denial and self-justification? How we respond to legitimate authority reflects our heart's posture toward that authority. And what authority has God given you? What authority has God given you to exercise? Are you a parent? then he has given you the high and lofty calling to use your authority to raise up children in the way they should go, to instruct them in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. Sometimes that is family devotions. Sometimes that is just keeping them alive if they're infants. Sometimes it's walking through the complexities and hurt of life while continuing to point them back to their savior. Are you an employer? then God has given you the calling to exercise authority in the marketplace, dealing justly with customers and employees, stewarding resources and bringing a return on them. He's given you authority to require equal weights and measures from your people and those with whom you do business. Are you a member of this church? Then God has given you the calling and authority to do all the one another's in scripture instruct one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, deal peaceably with one another, sing, speak to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, forgive one another. Then are you a believer? Then God has given you the authority to proclaim Christ and his gospel. Whatever authority God has entrusted to you, are you using it as Paul did? to be about the Lord's business and to present a holy offering to the Lord? Or are you using it to enlarge your own station in life? To bolster your own reputation, to control or manipulate, or to act as a gatekeeper of the gospel? Or are you simply ignoring it? Brothers and sisters, Adam abdicated his authority over creation he abdicated his authority over creation in the garden when he didn't rebuke the snake and when he didn't shepherd his wife. 
how we use our authority will also be determined, though, by what our purpose is. And so we have to ask ourselves this question in application as well. What purpose is driving you? Is it selfish gain or comfort or vanity or even vengeance? Or like Paul, is it the honor and the glory of Christ among all people? Do you see your job as a God-given vocation in which you are bringing the message of the excellencies of Christ and the way you perform your duties and in the services you provide? Or is it simply a means to make money, a thing that pays for your fun on the weekend? Do you see your role as a parent, as a primary contribution to the flourishing of humanity and glorifying to God as you develop and shepherd along your little ones who are made in his image? Or is it a burden, a sacrifice of your childless freedoms and an interruption to a healthy sleep schedule? Do you see your singleness as an opportunity to carry Christ's standard to unreached hills and unreached hearts Or is it a curse from which you're trying to escape? Brothers and sisters, God has given us a lofty purpose to proclaim Christ to all we come in contact with, both through our proclamation and through our undertakings. Not all of us are called to physically go like Paul. More of you are called than you think. Some of you need to consider what Pastor Ryan talked about. You're either a goer or a sender, and more of you are goers than I think you are comfortable with. But not all of us are called to physically go to the ends of the earth for the glory of Christ. Some of us are called to be scientists and engineers and truck drivers and tradesmen and doctors and nurses and fast food workers and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and to live out our lives right here in this little corner of Southeast Idaho where there are still thousands who have not heard the good news that Christ is Lord. Thousands that have not been presented as a sanctified offering to God. And our purpose, as a, as a believer, as Christ Community Church, our purpose is to bring them into the family of a God and expand the territory of the kingdom to the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your instruction. We thank you for your word that has the the power to cut through the, the fog and confusion to divide joint and marrow. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and that through his faithfulness we have heard the good news that you are Lord, and that you have brought justification to the Gentiles. And we thank you for your authority over all things, over every aspect of our life, over our family, over the government, over everything. And we thank you that you have given us such 
a wonderful purpose to see Christ exalted across the nations. To see Christ lifted up. And Lord, I pray if there are any in this room who have not gazed upon your beauty, cried out to you in faith, repented of their sin, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would forsake the kingdom of darkness, they would forsake bondage to the flesh, that they would open their hands and approach you in faith and find you a savior who is willing and just to forgive them. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Thank you.